like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia. Welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's episode is all about it, progress that is, because today's guest is a bona fide award-winning scientist and one of Popular Science Magazine's Brilliant 10, Dr. Lori Santos. If you haven't heard about her or listened to her TED Talk about monkey economics, you should absolutely check it out. We will link it in the stories for this week's episode. Pause the episode, honestly, look it up. You will not be disappointed. Because Dr. Santos is fascinating. She is a psychology professor at Yale University who has created the most popular course in the university's 300-year history. In addition to that, and her featured speaker status with TED, Dr. Santos has been featured by just about every news platform and periodical you can think of from the New York Times to the Today Show to Oprah Magazine. She is even a recipient of the Genius Award from the Liberty Science Center. Her desire to educate has expanded to include the Happiness Lab. It's a podcast series that she created to reevaluate the things we think will lead us to a happier life and how wrong we are about them a whole lot of the time. There is so much to learn from and about Dr. Santos, and I am going to try to cram as much as I can into the time that we have together so that we all can grow. Enjoy. So excited. And I have to say, I've actually never done this with a guest. Oh, you know, we record your intro separately and we could just get to dive into conversation. But I actually really want to begin our chat today with 
an explanation of your podcast, The Happiness Lab, because I think it's going to be a great kickoff for people who are tuning into this episode going, what is this professor going to tell me? Because when I read the description (laughs) of your show, I thought, yep, sign me up. I'm ready. And it reads (laughs) so beautifully. It says, for everyone at home, you might think you know what it takes to lead a happier life, more money, a better job, or Instagram-worthy vacations. You're dead wrong. Yale professor Dr. Lori Santos has studied the science of happiness and found that many of us do the exact opposite of what will truly make our lives better. Based on the psychology course she teaches at Yale, which is the most popular class in the university's 300-year history, Lori will take you through the latest scientific research and share some surprising and inspiring stories that will change the way you think about happiness. I feel like everyone's ready. We're ready to come to Yale. We're ready to take the course. I also feel the need to confess that in the beginning of the pandemic, when we were in the initial, you know, two weeks of the first lockdown, I was in a panic at home. I hadn't had a day off like that since 2003, and I didn't know what to do, and so I thought I should take a course, and I started looking up things on Coursera, and I signed up for your class And then I reorganized my spice cabinet. I labeled every shelf in every cabinet in my house. I ordered a new label maker so I could see if it was as good as the old label maker that I had because it was the new thing everyone was talking about in the reviews. I did everything but sit down and take a class, let alone a class that could perhaps teach me to be a happier person. And so I'm a little curious what that says to you in terms of psychology and perhaps how apt we all are at avoiding our own happiness. Yeah, I mean, I think you're not alone. I won't speak to the number of people who <laughs> signed on and didn't even take a single <laughs> look at a single video. It happens. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think so many of us want to do something to improve our flourishing, mm. but we're not sure what it is, right? And we gravitate towards the easy stuff, the fun stuff. I'm going to buy a label maker. Mm. You know, I'm going to do whatever, often buying things or, or kind of getting stuck in hustle culture, right? Like, I'm going to go for the next accolade. That will make me happy or bump up my salary or something. Mm. You know, we have these theories about what will make us happy. But I think one of the reasons the class is so important is because a lot of those theories are wrong, right? Like we're, it's not like we're not putting work into our happiness. We're going for it. Mm. We're just kind of going about it the wrong way. And often at an opportunity cost of things we could be spending our time on. Mm. So not to get to 30,000 feet, but would you say that that's what leads to certain chronic behaviors that cause stress, whether it's, you know, addiction, alcoholism, overspending, infidelity, you know, the the sort of list of things people do where you then hear them tell their story and they say, well, this is what ruined my life. Do, do, you, do you see those things correlating? Yeah, I think they really do. I mean, I think one of the misconceptions we have about happiness is that we're supposed to be happy all the time, Mm. right? That if I'm having some negative emotion, I'm failing at something. I've done something wrong. I think especially for parents, this comes up a lot where it's like, if your kid is sad, it's like, I have failed it. You know, I must must fix it, must give Mm. something, a cookie, something to fix it. And so I think a lot of those coping behaviors you talked about from addictive substances like workaholism, you know, even refreshing your relationship when maybe, you know, it wasn't the point to do that. All of those things are seeking something to make Mm. us feel different. And I think if we were just able to sit with 
sadness, anger, frustration. You know, you talked about the pandemic, like those were normative responses to the weird thing that happened in 2020. They're normative responses now, you know, like 19 months on in the midst of this. Mm -hmm. And I think we just kind of need to allow ourselves to go through those negative emotions more than we quite expect. Mm. It's interesting that you say that. I I actually loved I got to have a conversation about that in in my first long-term job, a show that I worked on. My character and her partner kind of struggled with that and had a conversation about happiness being a mood, not a destination. And it it makes me smile when I think about that, you know, being able to sort of model the conversation for an audience. And then it makes me think about how much I loved the movie Inside, you know, letting all the feelings be complete characters and and knowing that they all mattered I thought it was such a beautiful message to give to kids and their parents. Yeah. And this idea, you know, I think one of the beauties of that movie is you see that there is an importance to sadness, that we need anger. We need Mm. these kinds of things. And we need that message because, again, our instinct is to just shut those off, right? They don't exist. uh, Just pretend, right? But really what the research shows is that to get through those emotions, to kind of get to the other side of joy and all the things we want to get to, we need to make room for some of those negative emotions. We need to allow them and maybe even sit with them sometimes, even if it feels uncomfortable. Mm. Mm. I have so many questions for you. And I ran right into them instead of asking you the first question that I normally ask people. So I should probably do it now. I, I get to sit across from so many people whose brains and careers I'm fascinated by on the show. And so many people, I mean, truly around the world know you as the happiness doctor. But I'm so curious about how you became the person sitting across from me today was Lori at eight or nine or 10 a happy kid? What, what were you into, curious about? Where did you grow up? Can, can you kind of paint a picture um, of your, your little's life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is, you know, if you read your Moby Dick, it's the town where, (laughs) you know, Ishmael sails off. So it used to be this kind of rich whaling town. Now it's a lot more lower income and stuff. I grew up, I think, a pretty curious kid. I don't think I knew I wanted to be a happiness guru, but I was always fascinated with the minds, the minds of animals, the minds of people and things like that. Um, My real interest in psychology started when I went to college and Mm. the class that I wanted to get into, which was a pre-law class because I thought for some reason I wanted to be a lawyer. Very strange <laughs> now that I thought that. Uh, but the, that class was capped and I didn't get a, a spot. And my advisor said, well, try intro psych. And so I tried psychology and you can say like almost in some ways the rest is history. I really got taken by it. I mean, just so just this awe of the fact that there are these answers that we can look to for these puzzles of the mind, you know, why we fall in love, what happens when we sleep, why we make the dumb decisions we do, right? Like there's whole scientific approaches to understanding these things. And I was just really taken by, you know, I started in doing research even as a college student and kind of been on track ever since. But Mm. for most of my time as a psychologist, I studied what I I call my day job question, which is sort of what makes the human mind special. Um, I was really interested in 
human uniqueness. And I studied mm. that by looking at monkeys and looking at dogs and studying how they make sense of the world. Monkeys are a nice population to do that with because they're kind of our evolutionary ancestors. So they give us some evolutionary hints into what was going on in the human mind. And dogs are useful just because, like, they live with us. They're, like, <laughs> in our houses with us, right? You know, they, they tell us how the, the environment shaped us. So it's kind of a nature-nurture combo. When you say you were studying human uniqueness, is that related to humans as a unique species, you know, a unique group on Earth? Or does that reference how unique we all are in relation to each other, or, or is it both? I think a little bit of both. It's, it's more the former question, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's this question of like, you know, why are you and I doing this podcast over this technology of the internet and Zoom and computers with microphones, using human language, trying to teach people about happiness, this idea of pedagogy, when literally no other species is doing anything like this. Mm. Like slime molds and bonobos and dogs, they're all very similar to us in terms of their biology. But why aren't they doing any of the kind of crazy creative things that humans do? And, mm. and what like abilities, what kind of cognitive abilities, how we think, how we make decisions, what what's different about us that we get to do that stuff and they don't. And so so that was my day job for like several decades. And I, you know, published in that and that was the main thing. And the interest in happiness came out of a new role that I took on Yale's campus. I became a, a head of college on campus, which is this kind of funny term for a faculty member who lives on campus with students. Um, so I live in a residential college. It's kind of like a dorm or if you know Harry Potter, it's kind of like a, you know, like Gryffindor Slytherin, kind of like a, you know, <laughs> school within a school kind of thing. And so I became this head of college. I moved on campus with students and all of a sudden, I saw this college student mental health crisis up close and personal. I was watching students, mm. still am watching students experience extreme depression, suicidality, panic attacks. Even students who weren't experiencing clinical mental health issues were talking about, you know, I'd ask, how, how the, how's the week going? You know, I was like, oh, if I could just get to midterms, right? You know, I'm so stressed out. And it was, I was just watching them sort of fast forward their life because they were so ground down by hustle mm -hmm. culture. And so the happiness interest kind of came out of like, well, what can I do to help these students. They were just struggling so much with their mental health. And sometimes when I say that, people, I, I worry everyone listening is like, well, I'm not going to send my kid to Yale. <laughs> you know, like Yale sounds terrible, but it's not Yale. I mean, nationally right now, over 40% of college students across the U.S. Uh, report being too depressed to function most days. More than 60% of college students say that they feel overwhelming anxiety. Mm. And more than one in 10 says that they've seriously considered suicide in the last year. Mm. So if I'm teaching a college classroom with 100 kids, that means a few of them, maybe 10 of them are thinking, you know, that's terrifying, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I just realized, like, somebody had to do something. And so I kind of retrained in this work on the science of happiness in order to teach a class to students, really to give students strategies of, like, hey, you know, there, the research shows you can do stuff, right? Like, you don't, this, it, you don't have to feel this way. There's strategies you can use to feel better. Wow. And that's kind of when the class went a little bit viral on campus. It was a new class. I expected to teach, you know, 30 or 40 kids. But uh, I walked into a classroom with a quarter of the entire Yale campus in it. Uh, over a thousand students showed up the first day of class. So that was a little surreal and weird. <laughs> but it showed that the students were, they were voting with their feet. They don't like this culture of feeling stressed and anxious. And I think mm -hmm. they were really, they really resonated with this idea of an evidence-based approach. I wasn't just giving them a bunch of platitudes. I'm like, hey, here's what this study says. You know, look at this neuroscience paper. Like, yeah. we were, they were really seeing what the science showed they could do to feel better. And that feels thrilling because so many people everywhere are 
talking about overwhelm and anxiety. I mean, I spent last week moving, the week you and I are talking anyhow. I spent my last week moving. and Worth noting, moving third biggest life stressor after death of a family member and divorce. Like right after Mm -hmm. that, right? We don't realize moving can be so... My condolences, I guess. <laughs> and it was by far the, mo- the most organized move I'd ever had and this sort of joyous experience and all of these things. And yet today, which was sort of my first day back into normal work life, I just, I woke up 10 minutes before my alarm gripped with anxiety. I had a headache and I just thought, what is, what, what? It's done. Why do I feel this way now? And I almost got the sense that it was like all the adrenaline and stress was leaving my body and just making me feel terrible. Is that a thing that happens or do we just talk about that like it happens? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, anxiety, stress, all this stuff, like, you know, we are physical beings, Mm -hmm. right? Like this is going to exist in us in some rich way. You know, when you are feeling anxious, when you go through a life stressor, and yes, you know, again, moving, it's worth mentioning, is huge life stressor. Mm -hmm. That comes with an activation of your fight or flight response. This like part of your nervous system, which reacts as though there's like a tiger about to jump out and grab you. So different things happen. Your body like sends like adrenaline to all your system so like your body's like ready to flee away or you're getting ready to like fight or kind of get attacked right like it's not a good feeling and when you turn on your fight or flight system that's at the expense of a different system which is known as our rest and digest system like that's the system we use for like digesting our food and like sleeping properly Mm. and like our sexual functioning like we basically whenever we're under stress we kind of shut that system off and That works because the fight or flight system was built to like get turned on like, oh, tiger, you turn it on and then you run away from the tiger and you're good. Mm -hmm. But modern life has these moments where, you know, you probably had to plan moving for like three weeks or maybe longer, right? Like you've been activating that system straight for way longer than that system was ever meant to be active for. You know, so even, you know, maybe when it's over, when you finally have time to process, your body's like, dude, we are like pumping all of these stress hormones. Like, what's going mm-hmm. on? And yeah, your tummy's going to hurt. You're not going to be able to sleep. Like, you know, that's that's just the biology, what we're wired to do. Mm. Wow. I am so excited to get into all of this stuff. <laughs> I think it's fascinating that you found your way here because... You were living among your students and seeing their experiences in real time. That's so incredibly rare. And I think about what could happen if CEOs of major companies spent time with their uh, mid-level workers, with their largest, the largest portions of their workforce. If, you know, I always wonder what it would be like for me and, you know, my profession always being away somewhere, moving, by the way, all the time, (laughs) Um, (laughs) to go work on a set somewhere. And and the powers that be are never there, but they have expectations set for those of us that are. So, you know, we'll do 16, 17, 18-hour days. You know, the, the crew has even worse turnarounds than we do. Everything's very high stress. And I think, you know, I wonder if the people demanding X number of pages get filmed per day were here if they would agree anymore. And and yeah. I guess it's really striking me that that's what's missing in so many spaces is that the people who could offer a solution are often not in the space that needs problem solving. So mm-hmm. I think 
what an amazing moment it was for your students to have had that and obviously for it to change the course of of your life. When you think about being a child, curious and and all of the things that that you were, does your experience with your students that's now given you a larger lens for all of us really, does it in any way make you nostalgic for your childhood years? or versions of your child self? Yeah, I mean, definitely. In fact, this is something I've been working on in a recent episode of my podcast. I'm trying to find more fun, and that's caused me to look back a lot mm. at my youth. I was like, I used to have fun all the time. I used to just do goofy stuff. I, I don't, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a different generation, but I didn't grow up in the same generation of, you know, helicopter-parented kids who are shuffled off to soccer practice. I just kind of goofed around outside mm. and did whatever, and whatever creative pursuit came. And, you know, I've been reflecting a lot on how that seems to be a different childhood experience than many kids today have. I definitely had a different college experience than a lot of my college students have, where they're just so ingrained in work, work, work all the time. Um, I just came from a meeting with a student who was saying, you know, this semester I'm going to do something different. I'm going to take at least two hours off on Sunday. And I was like, two hours off on Sunday is not enough, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of like slammed with work. But even as I reflect on my own adult life, I think, you know, there's, there's ways that many of us as adults have lost something important important about, you know, so many of our childlike qualities, you know, like, you know, ask your listeners, when was the last time you just spent a whole day doing something fun Mm. and didn't feel guilty about it, right? Like didn't have that moment of anxiety of like, I shouldn't be doing this, shouldn't be doing this. I feel really guilty, right? Like, you know, I think so many of us lose that. And I think we need stronger strategies to get back to that. Because again, one of the things we know about having fun in that kind of curious childlike way is like, you're reducing your stress hormones, you're literally changing your hormonal balance by having fun and like of course you are because you're putting your body you know in that rest and digest fun state and that feels good that's such an important point when was the last time you had fun and didn't feel guilty about it yeah i think you know we just assume that we're supposed to be working. Mm. We, we kind of, I joke with my st- students that we often spend time shooting all over ourselves. Yeah. Get it? Like shooting all yes. over ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, I think we do that with even our leisure time, right? Like we finally, you know, so overwhelmed, we never get a break. We finally get a break and either we're too burned out to do anything fun. We just want to like plop down and like do nothing, you know, like just mindlessly click through channels or something. Or we, we have the opportunity to do something fun, but we feel so guilty about it that we can't, like, shut off the stress mm-hmm. hormones because the whole time we have this voice about, like, don't you have something to do Monday? Like, did you send that email? Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to even be present in those activities. Mm. And you're right. Thinking about what you said about your childhood being free enough to just play, it was different. We didn't have devices attached to us that were binging and tinging and asking for our attention all the time. And so much that we were supposed to keep up with it it was slower and i yeah and i think we we've lost something mm-hmm. as adults not having that and definitely i think children have lost something not having that now have you ever spoken about that with your family because i imagine as as shocking as it is for us in our generation it must be even more shocking for our parents to look at people the age of your college students and think what is their life have they ever known a life without this and I think, you know, what's funny is sometimes we, we get 
in an odd way, the opposite reaction, right? You know, there's a lot, you know, if you look at the news media, there's a lot made of like, oh, these snowflakes, you know, these like students. And, you know, I I hear that terminology and I sometimes ask like, well, who do we think made them snowflakes? Like, it wasn't like they plopped here and chose that, right? They were kind of, you know, faced with a situation that's really different than ours. Mm -hmm. You know, if I grew up with cell phones binging all the time and expectations about perfection and getting into these perfect Ivy League universities, right? Like, I think it's like, there's a reason they kind of wind up being so stressed mm-hmm. out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the just the difference, the divide. I, I even remember when the initial, you know, Nokia phone that you had to text on T9, like, dick 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 h you know? <laughs> My grandfather just was, was so appalled. You know, what do you need that thing for? You know, just be here. Make a plan with people for the weekend. It it really is such a different time. And, and I wonder... I know this is felt around the world, but it seems to be especially intense in this country with the, as you said, the the expectations of Ivy League schools and Wall Street jobs and this sort of, you know, American exceptionalism. And my father is an immigrant and my mother's mother was an immigrant. And we talk so much sort of about the differences in what's going on in our communities in different portions of our family around the world. And I know that you were born to a binational family and the, your father's side of the family came from Cabo Verde, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, did that multinational familial experience infuse different aspects of culture in your upbringing than these issues we're seeing ourselves swirling inside of here in specific today? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when you grow up in a multinational family, like you get, I think you get a few things. One is you recognize that like nothing's set in stone, that there are other ways to do things that, you know, Mm. like, you know, we conj when you're sick in this side of the family, but on this side (sighs) of the family, you have a beer or something, you know, like you kind of get like a little bit of different cultural worlds. And I think what that can show you is just that there are other paths, there are other ways. And I think if you look at a lot of traditional paths, you know, traditional cultural paths or even traditional religious paths and things, what you find is that they look different from the modern version, right? Like much more infused with social connection, much more infused with ritual, much less Mm. focused on individuals and more focused on the family, the community and these things. And in some ways, those quote unquote old school like cultural practices, those seem to be honoring the kinds of practices we know to be good for well-being, right? You know, this act of like promoting social connection at all costs. Like my dad grew up and you, you know, you go visit your mom every day, you know, every weekend, like we went to like visit my Mm. grandma. You know, at least once a week. Right. Mm -hmm. And like those practices can feel outdated sometimes or unnecessary in the modern, you know, the fast paced modern world. But the science shows is that they're, they're often there for a reason. When you dig into some of these older practices, they tend to be the things that are really promoting our well-being. And I think sometimes in the modern world, we lose these sometimes at our peril. The ritual that you mentioned, the community I do really feel like it's something we miss. And I would imagine part of it is because we've moved around so much as a culture. We're so much more mobile than we used to be. You know, I I grew up across the country from my grandfather. We made regular trips every year, but I 
I love our ability to move around and experience each other's worlds. And, and I also, on the flip side, worry sometimes that we're losing our connections, you know, our, our threads. And I look forward to hearing what ways you might suggest that people create them. Just before we, we move into the present research from your story, I, I'm also struck by the connection, which I think is pretty rare. You know, I've interviewed so many people who have gone to some of the Ivy League schools that you're talking about and who've studied in fascinating places around the world. It's it's pretty rare to have a guest whose undergrad and graduate education happened at the same place. <laughs> and I'm I, I'm struck by it because we're talking about places and routines uh, and ritual, if you will. And you went to Harvard and stayed there through a master's and a doctorate. What do you think drew you to that place? And, and what do you think kept you there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Harvard is a good school. <laughs> Lots of people <laughs> apply. You know, it's like a reasonable destination, you know, university. But part of it was that I was focused on this question, this, this studying this idea of like humans being unique and particularly studying at mm. the time I was studying monkeys. And, you know, there are not many like different laboratories around the world that were doing that. And so I wound up sticking around in part just because that was the lab that was doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, really liked the area. I kind of really had fallen in love with Cambridge and Boston. And so it did feel like home. I, I do feel like, you know, I kind of tend to be an old soul in that sense, right? You know, I stayed for a really long time in the same spot where I did my undergrad and graduate work in the same spot. I've been at Yale now since 2003, which makes me feel very old. <laughs> and that's kind of rare in academia, too, to stick around in one spot for like mm -hmm. So long. And so I think I have seen that putting down roots can be really powerful and that that transience can feel yucky. And especially that transience, you know, as an academic, that's true, really, right? You know, people, again, they do their dissertation in one spot and then they move on to a different place or they, mm -hmm. you know, start off at one university as a professor but might not get tenure and then have to move. And so, you know, you really are in this culture where it feels like people aren't necessarily going to stay for the long haul. And I worry about the fact that that's contributing to some less flourishing than we could have in the academy. Mm. Yeah, you don't have a chance to grow deep roots. Yeah, and what we know is like the deep roots matter a lot. I think, you know, again... A misconception we have is like, we want to keep all our options open, right? Like, we, want, we don't want to like get stuck anywhere. How can I live in one place in this, you know, big wide world for our whole lives? But what we know is that people who commit, people who are dedicated to one thing, people who put their roots down, like they tend to be happier for a bunch of reasons, mm -hmm. right? Once, once you decide, you can really engage with a place. You learn about it in a different way. Once you decide, like, all the other choices that weigh so heavily on our minds all the time, they're gone because you just picked one, right? And so we we forget that sometimes those choices can hurt us. Mm -hmm. And and I get it. You know, I have the same intuition. You know, if you ask me, do you want a Netflix with 10 shows or do you want a Netflix with, like, a Netflix number of shows? I'm like, pick the Netflix number of shows. Like, obviously, more choice is better. You know, I don't want to, like, get pinned down. But then if you look at my actual happiness when I'm, like, you know, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through, like, billions of movies, I'm not feeling happy. I'm feeling apathetic. I'm feeling FOMO for some movie I didn't pick and so on. Just the act of choosing can reduce some of that. When you think about roots and 
and the kinds of choices and uh, perspectives on choice you're, you're able to advise us on, I guess the question moves in two directions. Going back, I wonder if you had a favorite, you know, professor or mentor at Harvard and what you might have learned from them that now you having been at Yale for all of these years since 2003 might be passing on to your students. Each each place feels like it has uh, a very nice root system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I think, the beauty of these institutions. There's some problems with, you know, 300-year-old institution, like they're not built on the structures of social justice that we'd love them to be built on today. But Mm. they have these amazing deep roots. You know, I remember being at Harvard and realizing, like, you know, Kennedy was here, you know, like these, like if, you know, Emerson was here, you know, like these famous people that walk through the same halls that I did and the the kind of excitement and kind of interesting pressure that came with that. It was really Mm -hmm. cool. But in terms of favorite professors, you know, I think back to taking a really early class in psychology. I think I was only a sophomore at the time with a professor by the name of Nancy Kanwisher. She taught at Harvard at the the time. Now she teaches at MIT. And she was just like so cool. You know, at the time, like a really young professor and she studied neuroscience, which like in the 90s was this kind of new cool thing. And she was just kind of really interestingly badass. Like, you know, it's just like the kind of professor that I really wanted to be mm. or the person I want. Like when I thought like when I want grow up, I want to be like Nancy Kanwisher. And it's it's interesting and humbling to think that I could potentially be having that sort of effect on students. You know, when I hear that I, ha- I have other students who were college students with me and worked in my lab and then now have gone on to their own professorships and to see that they made that choice because they saw that inspiration in me is like just incredibly humbling and so touching. So now I'm like a academic grandma, you know, because my, my students have their own students at a different university. And so kind of getting my academic progeny out there, it's really cool. I think about it as an academic ripple effect, really. You know, if Nancy was the beginning for you, the way that it can move, do you feel like she was your biggest supporter in the early years of, of your work? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I was lucky enough to have lots of supporters, but Mm. she's definitely someone, you know, I've stayed close with and stayed in touch with and expressed to her that she'd had such an impact on my work. And so that's pretty cool now. That's so neat. So when you think about the the forward end of the root system, being at Yale and the, the light bulb moment of seeing what was happening with so many students, and I, I think about it as the micro example of the macro problem. We see, as we mentioned earlier, so much stress and overwhelm and burnout. And I mean, it's it's an unbelievable experience to feel overscheduled to the minute and burnt out all the time and like you don't have enough time to eat. And so you drink coffee all day and then eat fast food at night. I mean, I know there's so many people nodding along as you are and as I am. (laughs) We're we're all just, it's a nod party today. I know the students were the spark, but what was was the gateway into moving into happiness research? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know, part of it was the, the spark was the students. But I think, you know, if I'm being honest, you know, another thing that really scared me was that I saw a lot of their behavior in myself. I'd meet with them and be like, what's going on? Like, oh, if I could only just get to the weekend, you know what I mean? And part of me would think, man, you're 19. You want to fast forward to midterms? Like, you know, you only got one shot at being a sophomore in college. Just like love it and savor it. 
But then I was realizing that when they were saying that, I was thinking like, yeah, man, if we could just fast forward to midterms, like we'd all be happier. Like I wasn't making good choices. I was overscheduling myself. Like I was kind of feeling burnt out and feeling overwhelmed. Like I was also foregoing sleep, foregoing social connection to just pack my schedule to the brim. And so I realized I wasn't being a good example for them. And so part of learning these strategies was for them, but also part of it was really for me so that I could have strategies to do better for myself, but then also to be a good role model to my students. What do you think is a truth about happiness that takes most people by surprise the first time they learned it? And is it the same one that took you by surprise the first time you learned it? Interesting. Yeah, I think for me and definitely for my students is just this idea that, you know, we think circumstances are the kinds of things that make us happy. That if we were rich and had the perfect job and or the perfect part or the perfect accolade or the perfect grades or what have you, Mm. that that would make us happy. But the studies show that by and large, circumstances don't really matter for happiness all that much. And Mm. it's important to say a caveat, right? Like, you know, if you're you don't have enough money to put food on the table or a roof over your head. If you're in like a traumatic, abusive relationship, yeah, switching your circumstances around is going to matter. But for a lot, if not most of the people listening to this podcast who can put food on the table, you know, are in fine relationships, whatever, like changing your circumstances isn't going to matter more. Like switching Mm. your job's probably not going to matter if you can put food on the table, right? Like buying some new gadget is not going to make you as happy as you think. And, you know, in some ways we know that it's kind of in some ways common wisdom, but it's not like common practice, right? When I'm having Mm -hmm. a bad day, I want to like change something. Like maybe I should change my job or maybe I should Mm -hmm. buy myself something or treat myself or whatever. And the research seems to show that none of those things things seem to work, or at least they don't seem to work as well or as powerfully as we think. In other words, we think changing these circumstances will really change our happiness a lot and for a long time. And if anything, it changes it. If it changes it at all, it changes it only for a tiny bit and for a very short time. You know, when the package arrives, I'm like, oh, my new whatever. There's a moment of like, oh, but then that oh is like, you know, 30 (laughs) seconds and then I'm back to my email, you know, Mm -hmm. much more quickly. I feel like my brain is exploding with little fireworks of thoughts and questions. And I I might have answers for some of them if I hadn't chickened out and I had taken the class, which now I feel like this is the swift kick in the ass that I need to do it. Well, you're um, getting the Cliff Notes version today, I you know, the am, private private tutorial. <laughs> but I'm, well, I mean, that would be heaven, but I, I do, I love homework. I love a curriculum. That's the thing I miss the most about school is a syllabus. So I'm into it. Uh, <laughs> I actually realized a couple of years ago, diving into my own mental health and, you know, really wanting to learn tools and, and kind of expand my ability to understand myself and others. I loved doing traditional talk therapy, but getting into a coaching program I loved even more. I was like, oh, there's homework. I have to answer questions and write things and fill out. A- I love this. So it, I, anyhow, that's very tangential, but I'm, I'm, I'm very down uh, for the class. I, I am curious how you began once you started researching in this area specifically, how did you begin to put together out of this world of research, this breadth of information, how did you begin to create a curriculum? Where do you start with something like that? 
Yeah, well, there there had been other classes like this at other places. So I did kind of stand on the shoulder of giants kind of thing. But, you know, the way I conceptualized it was that the first thing we have to do for students is help them with the misconceptions, right? And I think this is one of the mm. big puzzles. It's something I talk about on my podcast, The Happiness Lab, a lot, which is the, our slogan is like, your mind lies to you about what makes you happy, right? You know, this <sighs> idea is you, you read like you're dead wrong, right? And so we really started with the misconceptions. What are the things you think are going to make you happy, but don't really work? And we mm. walk through things like the perfect job, the perfect salary, the perfect grades, lots of likes on social media, like just buying things, materialism, like we just kind of go through all the misconceptions first. And then I think if you learn that stuff, then you get curious about like, okay, why do our minds, like, why are they so dumb? Like, why do they suck so badly? Why do they get it wrong? And so then we kind of walk through some of, I call them dumb features of the mind that kind of lead us astray. And then we turn to like, okay, if those don't work, what are the things that really allow you to experience happiness? What are the things that are really going to work? And then in the end, we kind of turn to like, okay, that's all well and good, but, you know, how do I put this into practice, right? In the modern world where we're feeling so time-strapped and overwhelmed and so on, like, how can I make these behavior changes so that they'll stick? So mis-memory, that's a really interesting idea. And when you talk about the way that your mind lies to you and misleads you, I'm curious about how mismemory fits in because you're exploring both memory and mismemory in the current season of the Happiness Lab. And as you're referring to the way that you're unpacking all of these things, I wonder what nostalgia has to do with that. Because when I think about some of the behaviors we're talking about, you know, you said the package comes and three minutes later I'm back to email. Do you think nostalgia has to do with our desire to find something? Well, oh, remember when I was a kid and I got that sweater and it made me so happy? Maybe now if I get a sweater, is, is, there, is there something about nostalgia that's mixed in to these lies about what makes us happy? Or, or do those operate in sort of separate verticals? Yeah, I mean, I think there are real mistakes of memory and prediction that lead us astray when we're thinking Mm. about happiness. The biggest one is that there's lots of evidence that we're bad at predicting what emotions we're going to experience when something happens. Not Mm. the, like, direction of the emotions. Like, we know, you know, root canal, probably negative. Like, you know, win the lottery, probably pretty good, right? You know, we have the valence, right? Mm. But we don't really understand the magnitude or the duration. And that Mm. means that, like, we're just really bad at predicting, right? You know, so you get, you're a college student, you got the perfect grade. What's that going to do to your happiness? A lot of people predict like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be so happy. Like, it's going to be amazing. But you forget like there's other stuff going on. There's a party you didn't get into and the other stuff. Like, it gives a blip of happiness, but not as big as you thought and not for mm-hmm. as long as you thought. But then the reverse, you know, you're a college student predicting what's going to happen if I get a bad grade. You know, you think about that and you think, oh, I'm going to feel so terrible. Like, this is going to be awful. Like, it's going to ruin my week. But like, mm-hmm. actually, you get the bad grade. There's a million other things going on. You immediately rationalize that you have all these like kind of processes that kick in that say, well, that was stupid. The professor sucks. Like, I don't care. You know, like you just don't feel as bad about it as you think. And this is a problem of what's called affective forecasting. Like, we're just bad at forecasting what our emotions are going to look like. But the key is that even when we get evidence that we were wrong, you know, like, oh, like, I made that prediction about my grade, but I'm kind of fine. Like, that doesn't really update in our memory. And that's, I think, a spot where memory leads us astray. Like, you know, nostalgia kind of can lead us astray in a different way. But, like, the key is that, like, our memories, 
don't really pick up when when we kind of got through something fine, but we forget that it's possible. You know, a domain where I see this a lot is in like breakups. You know, your first breakup, you, you'd be forgiven for thinking, I'm never going to get over this. I'm going to love this person forever. You know, I'll be sad and depressed and eating ice cream out of the carton forever. But like mm. gradually you get better. But then breakup number two comes in. You don't say, well, with breakup number one, like, you know, got fine. You know, it took a while, but it, I was okay. You just think, no, this one is different. This one I'm mm. never going to recover from. And so we kind of, our memory doesn't register our resilience. Our memory doesn't register how fast we get over things. And that means that we just don't realize that we're as resilient as we are. It means we don't sometimes take risks that we could be taking because we're so scared of how things will go because we think back and be like, oh, everything went. So, you know, we don't remember that things went better than we expected. That's so interesting that we underestimate our own resilience. Big fireworks. Big brain fireworks on that one. I wonder about creating a better relationship to that resilience or or even just to our own ability to accurately perceive uh, our feelings and our circumstance. You speak a lot about the three blessings exercise. Is that designed to kind of put us back in right relationship with how we're feeling and what's going on around us. Yeah. So the three blessings exercise sounds really maybe powerful. It really, it's write down three things that are going well, like write down Mm -hmm. things, three things you're grateful for. And then I say that and you're like, oh, what's that going to do? But the, but this, the research shows that that does a lot. In fact, if you do that every night for two weeks, the research suggests you'll show significant improvements in your well-being, even just after two weeks of doing it. And the reason is that it's kind of redirecting your attention, what you're paying attention to, to like the good things in life. Naturally, our brains find the negative, right? Which makes sense over evolution, right? Like if you're walking through a forest, you don't need to notice the flowers, but you do need to notice the tigers who are going to attack you, right? And so our brain is ready to find the threats, the negatives, the spots where we should Mm. be scared or anxious or frustrated. It's not prone to find the joyous things. But like with just a little bit of training, you can get a lot better at that. And that's, I think, what the three blessings exercise does. It kind of tunes your mind to some of the good stuff. In one of my recent podcast episodes, I interviewed this guy, uh, Ross Gay, who's a poet who wrote a book called The Book of Delights. Um, And he Mm. decided for every day for a year, he'd write an essay about something that delighted him. And he would kind of call it out in the world when he saw something delightful. He'd yell, delight, and he sticks his finger in the air. And he said his mind got tuned for delights. At first, he was worried he wouldn't be able to find them. But over time, it was like, that's a delight, and that's a delight. And which one am I going to write about today? You know, he'd, he'd basically like completely retuned like a tuning fork what he paid attention to and switched to the positive stuff. And I think, you know, we can all, maybe we're not going to write an essay every single day about what delights us unless maybe you have a lot of time on your hands. That'd be great. Um, (laughs) But, you know, all of us can, you know, scribble down three things that we find as blessings in our lives. It can be pretty fast and have a really profound effect. Mm. One of my favorite episode arcs of your podcast is is one where you discussed giving yourself a fun intervention. And you mentioned earlier that you're really trying to lean into fun and play. So can you explain that concept as well a bit to our listeners? Because I, I think everyone is, is jotting down, you know, this practice of three moments of gratitude. Um, it's interesting. One of my best friends and I did that for a while. Um, She was postpartum and having a tough time. And I just said, okay, every day we're going to text each other three things we're grateful for. 
And we did it for, I don't know, like two months and it was great. And then we got busy and then she was feeling better. And, and I'm realizing in this moment that we should just do it forever. Um, so I'm, I'm saying that I suppose for accountability and also to say, I, I tested this on myself and it does work. It totally worked. Yeah. And I I just forgot. mm -hmm. Um, but I, this feels fun to realize that I've guinea pigged this on myself. And, and so I, I want to know about your fun intervention because basically I would also like to volunteer as tribute for that. <laughs> awesome. I think we need as many fun volunteers as possible. Well, if you want to sign up to be a fun volunteer, you should check out the website, howtohavefun.com, which actually is not mine, but the journalist Catherine Price's website. Oh. Um, she's doing. She's writing a book called The Power of Fun, and that's kind of where I got my fun intervention. I, even though I, I was the one who needed the fun intervention, I was kind of finding most of my life was work, and I hadn't tried new fun things in a while and I didn't have time for leisure. And then when I finally had time for leisure, I was so burnt out that all I could think to do was like plop down and watch Netflix. And nothing wrong with Mm -hmm. Netflix. I think that can be incredibly relaxing, but it might not be like fun. Like, Mm -hmm. Like when you think in your life, like, you know, think of a memory that you would describe as like so fun. Very few people, I think, think like, yeah, that one Netflix show I watched was like so fun. (laughs) You know, we think of like social things or times when we're being rebellious or goofy or trying something new Mm -hmm. often with friends, right? When we were really in the moment when time flew by, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's fun. And I had the realization that I hadn't gotten a lot of that in my life recently for better or for worse. And so Catherine was trying to help me find some fun. And we did it first, actually, by this this process of paying attention to delights and to blessings, in part because she thought one problem with fun is that we're just too distracted, right? Fun really requires being present, being in the moment, like being mm-hmm. in flow, right? So time can fly by. And with the incessant dings in real devices or the dings in my head of like, you should do this, da, 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 you know, like the, that voice that kind of calls you out of the moment, I realized I needed to work on those. And so Catherine gave me some delight homework. I had to find my own delights out there in the world. Ah. And it was a good way to kind of train my brain to notice good stuff instead of that incessant chatter of what I should be doing. Um, And so it was pretty helpful. But a second thing Catherine made me realize is that I kind of needed to try new things because probably like a lot of adults, I've kind of gotten away from the things I used to find fun, like as a kid. Mm. You know, there's all these things we do for fun as a kid and we feel like, well, we shouldn't spend our time on that anymore because we're the grind. Time is money. Like we should be working, working. And so Catherine convinced me to try some new things. So um, as part of this podcast episode, I even took a surfing lesson, which um, for those that know me i mean like i'm like an ivy league academic 40 something not very in shape like surfing was not like high on the list of expected things that i should be doing with my time but it wound up being super fun amazing what why do you think it's important for adults to purposefully seek out fun and and dedicate a practice of novel joy in their day-to-day lives. So many good reasons that come out of Catherine Price's book, but to kind of, you know, steal her thunder just a little bit. I mean, first of all, it's just fun, right? Like, you know, like if you, when you look back on your life and you're kind of going through your memories, I think you'll look back with joy on those so fun times in a way that you won't for something that was just relaxing. Mm. Like the leisure that felt so fun leaves an impact. And like for a life well-lived, you kind of want that. 
You know, second, it's just fun, right? Like it just feels good, right? So we want to fill our lives with things that feel good. But fun has all these benefits for our mental health. It can reduce our stress hormones, like literally change the hormonal balance in our bodies. It can allow us to feel a little bit more present. You know, mindfulness, we know being in the present moment makes us happier. So we kind of get that from fun. And also fun allows us to engage in a little bit of play, right? And we know that play, even separate from fun, is really good for us. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a reason animals tend to play when they're like little kids. It's related to brain development. And there's evidence suggesting that adults who play more have evidence of this brain neurotrophic factor, which is like proteins that are associated with brain growth, right? So you're kind of keeping savvy and cognitively sharp in your old age, right? Mm. Just through the act of playing more. There's also evidence if you look at like super smart, super successful people, a lot of them spent a lot of time having fun, like doing some other hobby just for fun. So the inventor, like uh, Richard Feynman, you know, the famous physicist, he played like bongo drums and the inventor Claude Shannon had like all of these crazy I don't even remember all of them like weird hobbies that he had and mm. there's there's evidence from creativity research that Nobel Prize winning scientists if you compare well what made them different from non-Nobel Prize winning scientists right like they're all at the same level doing stuff turns out the Nobel Prize winning scientists were more likely to do something on the side that was weird to have fun like they had these weird hobbies so it's it might be bumping up our cognition and our decision making in our performance in ways we don't expect. So when you when you amass all of the things you've learned from Catherine and through your own research and your own experiments with fun in your life, how much of that sort of personal growth do you feel informs your class, which just to brag about you again for a moment, I, I will just remind the listeners is Yale's most popular class in over 300 years. Uh, <laughs> how, how does it all come together? Yeah, well, I think the students appreciate that I never claim to be this guru, that I have all the answers. I'm very real with them where I'm like, look, I'm on this struggle too. I'm suffering from all the stuff that you're suffering from. Mm -hmm. And I have to take my own advice and my own medicine. And I think there's something that resonates with them by me being real like that, right? Like, I'm going through this too. I'm kind of self-experimenting. I'm trying to figure out whether or not these things work for me at the same time as I'm asking you to do the same thing. And that means that, you know, they see that I'm kind of a student too, you know, like Mm -hmm. we all are, right? Because even though I teach this class, I haven't changed those basic intuitions, right? Like those, I'm still Mm -hmm. human. Those misconceptions are still there. I'm just switching my behavior around to be a little bit better. I really like that idea that you can change your behavior, but something about you saying, my brain is my brain, the misconceptions remain, I actually didn't mean to rhyme, but here we are. Uh, (laughs) I think that's actually quite freeing because so many of us do carry that misconception of, well, once I learn it, I'll be better. Once I solve this, I'll feel happy. And I really love that you're saying it's not about solving anything. It's about just training yourself to do something else. And then what isn't working for you will get smaller. Yeah, that's a lovely way to put it because I think behavior change is hard, right? Mm -hmm. Like really changing our habits and changing our behavior is tough. And what ultimately matters isn't 
what the misconception is. Like, what matters is kind of how we act on it. So mm-hmm. you know, when you look at the big list of things that really do matter for our happiness, they include things like taking time to sleep, taking time to exercise, you know, stuff that's common wisdom but isn't common practice, right? We all kind of know it, but we don't necessarily, like, do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is something I struggle with. Things, this is the, we're talking right now, it's the very beginning of the semester. We're in, like, the first week of classes. Things are frantic and busy. And, like, it'd be so easy for me just to drop my normal, like, workout routine this week, like, and get that, you know, hour and a half back. That would be amazing. But I'm like, actually, this is the time that I need to double down on that. It doesn't feel like it. Like, it definitely Mm. feels like I'd prefer to do something else. But knowing the science saying like, okay, I don't believe my intuition tells me I don't need to do this, but let me try. Ultimately, and if you take time to mindfully notice, you notice, oh, I do feel better. Mm. The end of today, you know, we were just talking, I did a bunch of podcast episodes. I'm going to be dead tired. I'm going to feel the need to like plop down and scroll through Netflix, not talk to anyone, like just, but like... The science tells me like, oh, that's the time that I need to text a friend and reach out or do something active that will really feel like leisure rather than just feeling Mm. apathetic and yucky, right? That's not my intuition, but because I've seen the studies, I know, well, I need to do something that's a little bit different from my intuition. And then I need to, you know, again, do the experiment, pay attention. Like when you think, oh, actually, that kind of felt good. You know, it's like you were talking about with doing the blessings practice with your friends. Like, actually, now that I reflect on it, that was fantastic. Like, why did I stop doing that, right? Why did we stop? Yeah, this is another another interesting disconnect that I talk with um that I talk about a lot on the podcast with my students is like our brains aren't really wired to, you know, really go after all the things that we like all the time, which is kind of stupid. I mean, if you look at the the neuroscientific wiring of the brain, there are all these regions that code what's called liking, which is like the actual experience you get. You know, when I have a really hard workout, I like that. You know, it feels Mm. really good, right? Um, You know, when you were doing something really fun, like that so fun moment, that feels good. But your brain has different circuits for what you might want to call wanting, which is like the craving for those things, like whether or not you put Mm. effort into going after them. And there are a lot of cases where what we want doesn't match what we like. Like after this, I predict I want like my body's telling me, hey, go do, you know, some apathetic thing where I plop down and watch TV. But am I going to really like that as much as a hard Pilates workout after this? Mm-hmm. Like probably not. Right. And the reverse. Right. Like I don't have a, a wanting system, this craving to like meditate in the morning or like, you know, I have a craving to like eat a bunch of cupcakes or like, you know, salty things after this. And that's going to make me feel gross, whereas the meditation is going to make me feel great. And so mm. I think so many of our problems wind up relying on this fact that we don't necessarily want what we like and we don't necessarily not want things we're not going to like. It's it's a very poor brain design, but it explains a lot, I think. As you're explaining and and teaching all of this to people, now that the class is available online, you know, being adapted into a free course, by the way, for everyone listening on Coursera, anyone can sign up for. What has that experience been like to have this this very universal set of truths, but that I imagine feels very intimate in a classroom, become global. What what has that been like for you? Yeah, it's been a little strange. And even, you know, the online class that we filmed, I filmed it with this small little salon of about 20 students. We filmed it in my home. You know, so if you watch it on Coursera, it feels, you know, kind of intimate. I've been talking with these students 
And what's funny now is 3.5 million people have taken the class, right? And so it's like, huh, this thing that was like this intimate thing of me sharing these deep truths with the students in my home, (laughs) you know, have become the thing that literally millions of people are watching. So what it's been like has just been surreal, humbling, powerful. It's really taught me that so many people need this stuff. They need these insights. They especially need them in the midst of this pandemic stuff that we've all been going Mm -hmm. through. Yeah. So it's just really shown me that this scientific approach resonates and people really need it more than I even, even I expected. How do you think that your role as a professor and an educator in, I suppose, both of these mediums really has impacted you as a scientist? I think it's been, you know, really important for me as a scientist in the sense that I you really realize that sometimes when you're like in the ivory tower and a scientist, you can kind of just get in your head about like the accolade filled version of it. You know, I imagine even in the entertainment industry, you do this too. It's like, oh, let me get the next part or let me do the next thing, you know, for academics, like let me get mm-hmm. to the next grant or the next paper. And I think this process had made me realize that like ultimately these are truths that can help people, right? These mm-hmm. are things that we need to make accessible so people know how to use them so they can put them into effect in their lives to flourish more. And so, you know, it's made that work so much more meaningful, but it's also made it so much more important, right? You know, these can't be just findings that are published in some journal somewhere. We need to make sure these things are accessible and people know these things so they can put them into effect in their own lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about the truth of societal hurting that we see around us everywhere. And I wonder, how do we begin, all of us as a collective, to change that together? And, And certainly this research feels like a great way to begin. When yeah. when you look at the world around you, whether it's in your physical circle of your academic world or or perhaps halfway around the globe, who's really inspiring you right now? Oh, I mean, I get inspired by so many people. I mean, I'm inspired really quite locally by my staff. You know, I have this amazing staff, even in my college, who would like do anything for the students in our residential college at Sullivan mm-hmm. College here at Yale. Just the amount of work they put in, the way they've so flexibly navigated the pandemic and all the challenges that poses on a college campus, mm-hmm. like they are amazing and so inspiring. It's even sometimes hard to think like globally because, you know, I have such a passion and inspiration for the kinds of things they're doing yeah. on a local level. But even teaching this class, has also connected with me with people who are doing these inspirational acts. You know, it was actually a student in my class who started a program called Helping Hands, where in the pandemic, he was kind of delivering groceries to elderly individuals. And that's incredible that, you know, a student could come up with this and could kind of really change people's lives. So, yeah, I mean, I see inspiration all over the place, but but often really locally because we I think whenever, again, if you train your mind towards these blessings, towards these delights, towards the things that you're thankful for, you know, you can notice thankfulness even in these tiny spaces. You don't have to be like, well, this amazing, you know, politician or person who's Mm -hmm. fighting for social justice. Like you see it just in your own backyard, you know, Mm. and you can be profoundly affected by it. I love that. The reminder to to really look around you and be present, I think, is so important. The pandemic has certainly taught me that. That's really been my silver lining is to be more deeply present. And it's also shown me that I can't do as much in a day as I've always thought. It's just not possible. 
the goals can exist, the interests can be there, but time is just not as flexible as I wish it was. And, and in your TED Talk, you actually talk about how important it is that we recognize our limitations. And you talk about how recognizing our limitations might lead us to being able to overcome them as a species, which was fascinating to me. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think we have these dumb intuitions. We make these mistakes. We have these tendencies that might not be leading us towards flourishing, that might be mm. actually leading us away from flourishing. Mm. And I feel like, on the one hand, well, that's annoying that our minds are designed in this dumb way. But by understanding those design flaws, we really can not necessarily fix them, but kind of come up with like kludgy solutions to do better, mm. right? I don't think we're, I, I don't necessarily think we're ever going to fully overcome all these misconceptions. It's going to be hard to believe, no, money doesn't matter for happiness or, oh, I'll just be perfectly happy if some terrible circumstance happens to me. Like it's hard for our brains to think that, mm -hmm. but we can know the science enough to structure our days with practices that really will help us flourish a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And that knowledge is really power. It's not like resetting all these misconceptions, but knowing our flaws can allow us to, to work with them. And, and work with them to be happier. Hmm. Given the state of us, or maybe the world today, what, when you look at those limitations that we might be able to overcome, what limitations do you think that we, as a species, should immediately try to address? Well, there are lots, you know, I mean, you know, many, many, but I mean, I think, one is that there are so many opportunities to do better in the world that we tend not to do because we assume they'll kind of compete with our happiness. So an example is like, if I'm having a really bad day, I get this urge of like, oh, I want to treat myself. I want to do something nice for myself. I'm going to order mm -hmm. myself dinner, or buy myself something or whatever. And it turns out if you look at the science, that's not the best way to spend your money to feel better. In fact, you'd be better off spending your money, like, like dollar for dollar in terms of your happiness impact, you'd be better off spending that money on someone else. There's been these studies done where you walk up to people on the street, hand them some money, and you tell them either, hey, spend that money tonight to treat yourself, or hey, spend that money tonight to do something nice for another person. And what you find is that the the group of people who do the nice thing for other people wind up happier than those that spend the money to treat themselves. Mm. I bring this up to say there are a lot of points in my life where I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel terrible. What can I do to feel better? My instinct is often not like, let me do something awesome for somebody else. Let me text a friend who might be struggling and check in on them. Let me donate something to charity. Let me like put some time into volunteering for this good cause. That's not my instinct. But if it was my instinct, I'd both make myself happier and I'd probably do something to make the world at large a better place, right? Mm. And so that's a flaw that I think if we understood that, if we understood that doing kind things for others, that treating other people is more effective than treating ourselves, we do that more often because that's the path to personal happiness. Like just selfishly, we do it more often. But it would lead mm -hmm. to such a cascade of good effects in the world too. Yes. That's one of the things that I always try to talk to young people about in particular if I am speaking at a college or with a group of students and they're asking me about activism. I just say, listen, you're showing up to work, but you, you will be happier than you've been doing anything else. When you show up for other people, it changes your life. And 
I like knowing that there's data to yeah. prove it. <laughs> when there's science that backs you up in, and, you know, this yeah. thing I think, and science. But again, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to, I know the science, I could quote you the study in the year it was published, but like, it's hard to put into effect in your own life. I did this mm-hmm. myself in, in a kind of just a tiny example. So I had my birthday in the first year of the pandemic. You know, now we've had multiple birthdays in the pandemic. But you know, at the time, I was like, oh, what was me? I can't go out to eat. You know, and like mm-hmm. the year one, like I'm in lockdown. What am I going to do? This sucks. And so I was like, okay, let me take a page out of the happiness playbook. Like, what should I do? And I was saying, like, maybe this is the year I should give birthday presents to other people. Like, maybe I should do for others. Like, you know, shocker, but on what I just said. But I thought it was right before the school year started. And this was 2020 when we really didn't know what was happening on campus. So many of my like colleagues who also work as heads of college were like scared and frustrated. And it was just like a bad time. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to get each of them a bottle of champagne, splurge a little, right? My other colleagues who are in the same role. And I decided I would write each of them a little gratitude letter of like, you know, this, this year has been tough, but I'm so, you know, one thing I'm grateful for is that you've been there with me and that, you know, like we've been in this mm. together and and brought them to their house. And even telling the story now, I can feel my heart filling up because their reactions, mm. happy tears, returning the favor. Even just a couple of weeks ago, one of them like called me and brought it up. It was like, you know, I was just thinking of that letter you wrote and like, you know, how much we've been through since then. Like I have such stronger relationships with all of them because of that act. And I could have blown, like I could have bought that many bottles of champagne for myself and just blown through them, you know, hopefully like with, with reasonable separation. <laughs> but like it wouldn't have given me the joy and the kind of ripple effect to joy, as you said before, mm-hmm. that doing those nice things did over time. But like, mm. again, we get it wrong. Like we get the presents on our birthday. You know, imagine if all of our birthdays were giving yeah. things away to others. And again, it makes us happy at the same time as it makes the world better. Like the brain didn't have to work like that, but it did. And that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. I love that. And that that feels like cracking a code of the brain somehow, you know, quite literally when I think about how so many of my favorite things I call life hacks. Ooh, it's a good life hack. This feels like a life hack. And I wonder if if you could solve or uncover or, or crack the code on, on any current mystery about the human mind, because we're talking about all this data, what, what would you want to tackle next? Yeah, I mean, if I had my druthers and going to really understand stupid features of the mind. You know, I think I think actually the one I would most want to figure out and figure out how to fix is that disconnect I mentioned between wanting and liking. If I could mm. just get my brain to crave the stuff that would really feel good, if I could crave oh. doing nice things for others, if I could crave a really intense hour-long meditation class, which would be amazing for my psyche, if I could mm. crave saying no in a way that didn't make me feel guilty, right? All of those things wow. would be so good. Like brain lead me in the right direction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And right now, it seems like brains are structured that they don't often do that. And the flip side, if I could say brain, four chocolate chip cookies right before I went to bed, not a smooth move, like falling Mm -hmm. asleep. Like brain, could we not skip the workout this week? Can you make me crave that Pilates class just like I craved those cookies? Mm. If we could get brains to do that, we'd we'd be killing it. But right now, there's some, there's still a lot of room to figure out and understand why the brain is disconnected in that way and what we can do to fix it. Still a bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. That feels exciting. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I mean, right now it feels like 
damn it, brain, do it. <laughs> do what I want you to <laughs> Get it together. But um, yeah, the, the scientific craving. mystery part of it is fun. Yeah. Stop craving sour candy. Start craving water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Simple. A be, simple one, right? That would be really nice. I, I imagine there's so many people feeling inspired right now and excited and, you know, who want to sign up for the course. But I've got your ear in this in this moment, lucky for me. So I'm wondering, for the folks out there who really look up to you, is there any advice you'd like to give? Yeah, I mean, I think the advice I care most about is that, like, you you can control your own flourishing, right? Like, mm-hmm. not in a guilty way. Like, it's on you to, like, flourish more. If you're feeling depressed and anxious, it's on you. No, like, there's a lot of our happiness that we really can control if we have the right strategies. We don't. Like, our brains are not designed to have the right strategies, so it's nothing you should feel guilty about. But with the right strategies, you can just feel better. And that mm-hmm. is so powerful. It's hard, right? Like, it takes behavior change, and that takes work. Mm-hmm. But, like, the path is there that you really can improve. And that's the piece of advice I share because wow, that's profound. Like no matter how you're feeling, like you can use strategies to feel a little bit better. Even if one of those strategies is like allowing and accepting your emotions, there are strategies for that to getting through the negative stuff. Mm. Um, but all of it is there for you to control if you understand how to do it. And and that's real power. Mm. That feels exciting. When you look at the landscape of your life, your academic career, your work, your goals that lie ahead, what would you say upon that survey feels like the work in progress in your life right now? Right now, the real work in progress, I would say, is two things. One is trying to find as many ways to get this content out and share these insights Mm -hmm. with other people as we can. Hard at work at the next season of our podcast, The Happiness Lab. That's the work in progress that I'm kind of most proud of and most excited to share with people. But, you know, if I think personally, like, I'm the work in progress, you know, like I'm the one who's really trying to think about my own flourishing and how to put these habits into effect in my own life. And it does constantly take work. That's the, you know, I gave the good news before. The good news is like we have so much control over our flourishing. Mm -hmm. The bad news is just like other things we have control over, it takes work. Like you can become, you know, like incredibly fit, but like you got to hit the gym, right? Like you could learn Italian, but like you kind of pick up a book and like, you know, Mm -hmm. go on Duolingo or whatever. Like, like all good things you can do it, but it does take some work. And the second work in progress is really me. I'm trying to put that work in and see what happens on the other side. I like it. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And I really appreciate you joining all of us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show.